Morning, everybody. That was reminiscent of a time when I, I expected there to be a video, and Kevin said, I think literally, without further ado, we're going to have our sermon. And I was like at the very back, and I was like, I really thought there was further ado. <laughs> hey, we have been in the Gospel of Matthew for a very long time, and, and those of you who've been with us for a while, you know that. I mean, we're like a couple years into this now, and uh, we started it on purpose as a very long series with just a focus on Jesus coming out of COVID and all of the difficulties that went into that. We just said, we need a long time with King Jesus. And so that was the goal and and the entire design of this series. And and throughout it, we have seen Matthew portray Jesus in so many incredible, just unbelievable ways. We've seen him delivering these sermons like the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen him performing incredible miracles, healing the blind, healing people with leprosy. We've seen him confronting the corrupt leadership of Israel. We've seen stuff like him kicking people out of the temple lately who are selling, buying and selling animals and exchanging money. He's done all of these incredible things that teach us this guy is more than just a regular person. That's like the understatement of the year, right? You see Jesus portrayed by Matthew walking on water, saying, you know, fear not, it's me, I am. And you know, this is, this is God we're seeing. That's the message that Matthew is trying to get across. And we've seen that in particular the last few weeks with the things he's done since his arrival in Jerusalem. Now, today's passage is a really, really important counterbalance to that. This emphasis on Jesus as this, this you know, he's kicking people out of the temple because it's his house. This is my father's house. And so and today we go to the absolute depths, one of the darkest stories that ever happened in all of human history. It's a story where you see on display the humanity of Jesus. We've seen the divinity indicated and expressed over and over again today You see his humanity as he suffers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before we start that, I want to ask you a question, and it's a question I really want you to actually think about and consider. If you knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you were about to experience the worst suffering imaginable, if the worst thing you could possibly imagine was about to happen to you, what would you do? You got 24 hours and you know, After that, you're going to experience the worst thing you can even fathom, beyond imagination. Who would you talk to? What would you say? What thoughts would go through your mind? Where would you go? Because today's story, we get the Son of God's answer to that question. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That first sentence is a really important transition. This is the transition from the Passover supper that they were just having. We looked at that last week. It's where Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper, communion that we celebrate every single week at South Valley. And this is the transition sentence to him taking them to the Mount of Olives. But slow down and and take it in. Every part of the story is so incredible and you don't want to miss it. Jesus, as the Passover meal comes to an end, And as he goes towards suffering and betrayal and death, he sings a hymn with his closest friends. Every household in Jerusalem that night that's celebrating the Passover, they're all doing the same thing, singing a hymn together, expressing praise to God. Then as they go to the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells his disciples, everything's about to go bad, and when it does, you're all going to fall away. Every single one of you guys is going to leave me. You're going to betray me and abandon me. And the the disciples, 
they disagree vehemently. And if you know the character of some of the disciples that we know well, you won't be at all surprised by who talks first. Peter answered him. Now, before I even read what Peter says, I love Peter because Peter puts his foot in his mouth all the time. And this is like one of the most supreme examples of that. Maybe the ultimate example of Peter just putting, putting his mouth, you know, putting the cart before the horse in a massive way. He, think about this, he just confessed Jesus to be the son of God. He's the first one to do that. He, he says, you're the Messiah. I'll follow you no matter what. Now the son of God just told him something's gonna happen. And Peter's immediate knee-jerk response is, nope, no, Jesus, son of God, you're wrong. Though they, oh, and then he also throws all his friends under the bus, which I love too. Even though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. This is like classic Peter. Some of you guys have a Peter in your peer group. And as the saying goes, if you don't think you do, you might be the Peter in your peer group, right? <laughs> Jesus goes, you're all gonna fall away to, from me this night. He quoted the prophet Zechariah. He said, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. Peter says, even though all these guys might, I never will. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now we're actually not gonna read far enough today to get to Jesus' prophecy coming true about Peter or even about the disciples scattering. But it's incredibly important to, to acknowledge, this is a side note, that the disciples, who are the ones writing these books, by the way, the author of this book is Matthew. He's one of these 11 guys. They are never afraid to include stories of their own failure. Have you ever noticed that? Remember, he's writing this book in the days of the early church. These are the leaders of the early Christian movement. And they're telling you the truth, man. They don't sugarcoat themselves at all. Every once in a while, you'll get a nice little note, like in John's gospel, he he goes out of his way to include the detail that he can run faster than Peter. That's a little thing. If, you, if you're paying attention, you might notice. But in general, these guys have no fear about exposing their weakness and humiliation and foolishness. And there's something really powerful about that because that means as the early church is starting, these guys understand at a deep level, no, I, we, it's not about us being perfect. We make mistakes. We fail. There's only one who doesn't fail. And so they're not afraid to include details like this one. Jesus takes them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane um, is an olive orchard. I always say olive orchard because if I say olive garden, everyone's gonna want unlimited soup, salad, and breadsticks. So I just, olive orchard. Probably a privately owned olive orchard. There's a traditional site in Jerusalem to this day that you can go that that, uh, has incredibly old olive trees. Not not old enough to have been there when Jesus was there, but they have like 500 plus year old olive trees. I'm gonna picture just a beautiful orchard of olive olive trees, probably a place Jesus and his disciples had gone to before. But even the name of this place has powerful symbolic value for what's about to happen there. Gethsemane means olive press. The way an olive press worked in the ancient world was you'd have like a stone trough, you would place the olives in it, and you would roll a massive heavy stone across the top of the olives over and over again, mashing them into pulp, pressing them and crushing them to get out of them the valuable thing inside, the olive oil. It's a really important product in ancient Israel. So the name of this place means olive press. Calls to mind the crushing of the olive to bring out the precious thing within it. And as Jesus goes here with his disciples, there's a a crushing that's about to take place. Jesus is going to be subjected to a crushing. He's gonna be brought to the absolute edge of what a human being can handle. 
And the important question to ask as we go in is what comes out of Jesus, the Son of God? What comes out when he's subjected to that kind of pressing and crushing? Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So Jesus leaves most of the 11 at one spot and then he brings his kind of inner circle, Peter and Matthew likes to call them the sons of Zebedee. It's Peter, James, and John, their two brothers. He brings those three and this is kind of his inner circle. He's done this a few times before where he brings all his disciples but then there are these three men who get to witness things at another level. Importantly, the last time we saw this happen was at the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, without retelling that whole story, here's the summary. Jesus brings Peter, James, and John beyond where the other disciples go, up to the top of a mountain. This happened quite a while ago in the text. And when he's up there, Jesus, Matthew says, is transfigured. His clothes become brilliant, shining white. His face begins to shine with a light from within. And they see up there standing with him Elijah and Moses, two men who have been dead for generations at this point. So they, all, they see Jesus kind of unveiled before them as the God that he truly is. And a voice speaks from heaven. The Father says, this is my son. Listen to him. So Peter, James, and John have seen Jesus at the highest point, the highest imaginable level. They've seen Jesus revealed in part as what he truly is. This is God. They've seen that. And now they're going to get the exact opposite experience, brought to Jesus' lowest point. And he tells them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Matthew says he's sorrowful and troubled. And both of those words in English are a little bit weak. Um, the, the Greek there is meant to indicate extreme serious suffering. This is not just a, a rough day. This is, this is absolute misery and desperation. Jesus is at the edge. What's incredible is he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. And when he says that, that's not just like a, a random expression of distress that he's feeling. If you notice, if you're reading in your Bible, you'll see there's a little footnote right next to that phrase that directs you to the Psalms. And that's because what Jesus says is a near exact quotation from the Greek translation of Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? So when Jesus says my soul is tr greatly distressed, greatly troubled, that's almost the same as the Greek translation of my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There's two things about this that are so incredible. For one, as an early answer to the question we asked, when you press Jesus, when he goes into anguish and distress and horror, what comes out is the Bible. Isn't that incredible? His expression of distress and anguish is to quote the Psalms. And not only that, when you quote a psalm, you quote the whole idea. You evoke that whole thought, right? And this psalm over and over again says things like this. Why are you in turmoil? Why are you in distress? Hope in God, trust in God, he brings salvation. So even in Jesus' expression of absolute anguish, there is like buried within it also an expression of hope and trust in salvation. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, 
So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples are falling asleep, and you might be tempted to be like sensitive to them. Matthew kind of seems like he is in the next section. He's going to say that their eyes are heavy. That's his whole explanation for this. But what's funny, uh, not funny, what's, what's ironic about this is that this is Passover night. And we know that in this tradition, these guys would have expected that unlike any other night, they're going to stay up late on Passover. After Passover dinner is done, young men like this would stay up telling stories about God's redemption and salvation of his people. And this was like a New Year's Eve kind of expectation, right? So these are the guys, you know, falling asleep at 8 p.m. on New Year's Eve. In other words, these are people who are exactly like me every New Year's Eve since I had children. How many of you guys actually stayed up till midnight the last New Year's Eve? That's a tiny number, and many of you, if not all of you, have grown-up children, I noticed. <laughs> we, showed, uh, we showed our kids. I was with Isaac and his family, and he, he's very smart, as you know, and he showed live view of New Year's Eve in a time zone where it was already happening, even though it was like 8 p.m. here. So we had our New Year's experience at 8 p.m., and everybody went to bed. <laughs> These guys are on a night when you would expect to stay up late, and they're falling asleep after Jesus just asked them to stay awake with him. They haven't even really fallen away and abandoned him yet. That's going to happen in a dramatic way when Judas comes, but they're already abandoning him. You see this? Hey, stay with me. Watch with me. I need you. But when he comes back, every time they're falling asleep. Now back to the beginning of this. It says he went a little farther and fell on his face. This is the only place where we ever see Jesus do this. Picture it. Don't breeze by this stuff. The son of God in a garden falls on his face in the dirt in desperation. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' distress is focused on this cup. And when he says the cup, he's invoking an image that is all over the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is full of mentions of this cup. You see it in the prophets. You see it in the Psalms. Later on, even in the New Testament, you'll see it in places like the book of Revelation. And the image of the cup is a cup that is filled with God's righteous wrath against sin. So God, this is, this is what the, the symbol is meant to mean. God, in his righteousness and goodness, sees the sins of the nations of the world. And his righteous, wrathful response to that evil and wickedness that he sees is contained in this metaphorical cup. And the prophets will say things like, the nations are going to drink this cup. Sometimes it's Israel's going to drink this cup. But always it's language of judgment. God is going to pour out his wrath because of sin on the nations. And that's what the cup means. And so Jesus, the one person in human history who contributed nothing to it, knows he's going to drink it. And he's falling apart. And here's the thing, this is so important for us. Because if you are, like me, a, a modern Western evangelical, and this is your tradition, then you naturally have a tendency to see God, sorry, to see Jesus as just the God man, just the God part. You see him kind of floating around, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For so they persecuted the prophets of old, right? This is Jesus at his most human. 
And it's incredibly important to see this. This is what the Bible teaches about Jesus, and it's what the church has held to from the very beginning, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. What that means, without getting too technical, the church has said from the earliest days that Jesus is one person, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And he, is, he represents the two natures, the divine nature, God, and the human nature fully united in one person without confusion. That's the language of the early church councils. Human nature, divine nature, fully united in one person without confusion. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he is both. He is God completely, and he is man completely. And you have to see both of those things. And this is the clearest, most painful display of the human nature of Jesus facing the cup of wrath that he has to drink and having a human response to that. And here's the thing. This is something that has actually truly filled me with awe all week every time I think about it, really. The author of Hebrews later on is gonna say that the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, the Son of God upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about what that means. That means present tense, right now. The reason this room and everyone in it doesn't explode into nothingness is because the Son of God is actively holding it together. So I want you to think about this. Jesus is lying on his face in the dirt, in the Gethsemane. And at the same moment, those very olive trees surrounding him, the dirt molecules under his face are being held together by his divine nature, while his human nature, Luke says, is in such great distress that he sweats blood and pleads with his father if there's any other way. I do not want to do this. That's the mystery of the incarnation. Find another religion that talks about God like that. You cannot. That's the incarnation. Truly human. What happens when you press this olive? What comes out? This is hard to notice, but look at how he's praying. Does this sound familiar? My father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Right? And then later, even when he goes to his disciples, he goes, pray that you may not be led into temptation. I mean, Jesus is here praying in exactly the way he taught his disciples to pray. You go to God, you prioritize the will of God, you make your request, you pray to be spared from temptation from the evil one. It's exactly how Jesus is praying. And he does it two more times. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. There's actually a little bit, I think, of, of progression between these two prayers, even though they're very similar. The first one, it's if there's any other way, let this cut pass from me. The second prayer, it's, if, if there's not another way. Sorry, if it can't pass from me. So if it can pass from me, then let it. To, if it cannot pass, then your will be done. There's a movement towards resolve that I see here. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Jesus is going back to the Father and making the same request and expressing the same trust in his will. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You see here, 
in the posture of Jesus, what has happened is a result of, of his time with his father. You see that? He goes from the like, my soul is troubled, anguish to the point of death. Again, Luke says he sweats blood. And as a direct result, not in spite of, but because of his going to his father over and over and pouring out his request and putting his trust in the will of the father, by the time he comes here and Judas is on the way, the tone is, get up, let's go. My betrayer's here. There's a resolution, there's a a resolve in Jesus that is a direct result of the prayers he's prayed. And this is where we leave the text today. It's almost like that cliffhanger, right? The, the betrayer is here. And what's interesting, you see it twice just in these two verses, but the word, the Greek word for betray occurs 10 times in Matthew 26. Like Matthew does not want you to miss it. And that's in addition to saying things like, you'll fall away or you'll deny me. But just the word betray, 10 times over and over again. Matthew's like, don't miss this. He's gonna be betrayed. I asked you at the beginning, if you knew that the worst imaginable thing was going to happen to you, what would you do? And there's a sense in which that's a hypothetical question, but there's also a sense in which, like, for most of us, it's not. I mean, you don't always know it's coming, and certainly none of us deal with what Jesus dealt with. You're not going to, you know, drink the sum total of God's wrath against sin when you don't deserve it. But all of us have had that experience of what we call, like, it's, it's a straight-up, like, you know, just a, a term we use colloquially now, the dark night of the soul, this idea of that, that ang- existential doubt and angst and fear and pain, those nights. And sometimes, you guys know, sometimes those nights last for years, right? Where you don't know what's gonna happen, where your soul is troubled to the point of death, as Jesus said. So the question of what you do when that happens is not really just a hypothetical question. It's a, it's a very real question for most of us. What do you do? when you face that? How do you handle that? That's why this story is so important. That's why this story is worth spending an entire sermon on instead of combining it with other material. Because first and foremost, you need to know when you experience that, that Jesus knows exactly what you feel. And not just like because God's omniscient so he knows everything, right? God's not up in the clouds going, oh yes, I have an academic understanding of what it's like to suffer because I know everything. No, because of the incarnation, God has experienced this. So when you suffer, when you doubt, when you're fearful, when you have to face something and you don't want to go through it, and you pray, you need to know you're talking to a king who understands You pray to Jesus and he says, I know, I know. I know what it feels like to not want to face something. And then from that, you also get his example of how to approach that. What does Jesus do? Well, first and foremost, man, he he just is complete, pure honesty in the face of this. There's no posturing. There's no like, Lord, I know that everything is gonna work out fine and so I just, you know, really wanna submit to your will. I mean, like, he, of course, submits to the will of the Father, but it's, he first comes to him like, Father, I do not want to face this. Is there any other way? Is there any way out of this? I don't want to do it. There's an honesty. Jesus has a complete honesty with his Father. It reminds me of the book of Job. If you're familiar with the book of Job, you know there's like dozens, literally dozens of chapters of Job and his friends kind of going around and around, and they're arguing in a poetic argument 
and the friends are kind of trying to defend God's honor. Like, God wouldn't possibly do that. God would never, and they're kind of like really focused on defending this really simple view of what God is like. Job, Job is so honest with God that it's uncomfortable sometimes. Job will be like, it's like you like this. It's like I can't catch my breath. Every time I'm about to catch my breath, you hit me again. And you read that book, and you're like, Job, that's God, dude. Like, back off a little bit, man. You're pushing it. But the book ends, and when God speaks to Job's friends, he says, you have not spoken rightly of me as my servant Job has. There's this honoring of the honesty that Job brings to God. And it completely makes sense. You only have to think about it for 30 seconds to realize, like, God knows how you feel. Like, if you come to God with fake piety in the midst of suffering, it's not like you're, you're fooling him or impressing him. He knows. And so you see in Jesus this face-to-the-dirt honesty, right? But then you also see that at the end of that, just like the Psalms that he quotes, they, he ends with trust and submission. Your will, your will, your will. I know what got humanity into this mess. Adam and Eve said, my will. Abraham said, my will. David said, my will. Jesus in the garden says, not my will, your will. So there's this complete honesty, but there's also this complete trust. And as we talked about the whole time, he, he relies upon the truth of Scripture, just like he did when he faced the Satan and the temptation in the wilderness. He relies on the unshakable truth of Scripture. Even his expression of distress is to quote Psalm 42. When I read this story, it makes me want to be so filled up with the truth of Scripture that that's what comes out of me when I'm, when I'm pressed, when I'm crushed. Now, there's another thing, and it's an absolutely astounding thing. This is the very first verse we looked at, the end of Passover. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, what's incredible is we know with a very, very high degree of confidence the psalm that they sang that night. And we know because of the Talmud. The Talmud talks about the sequence of the Passover supper and the, the four cups they would drink and how they would begin after the second cup to sing the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms 113 through 118. And so make a long story short, what you arrive at is at the end of the meal, the psalm you sing to close things out is Psalm 118. So think about this for a second. Jesus knows what he's about to face. He knows he's gonna drink the cup of God's wrath that he doesn't deserve and it's gonna be the worst fate imaginable for a human. And before he goes to face that, you know the song on his lips. There's some key moments from it I wanna focus on. I wish we had time to read the whole thing, it's long. It starts with, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it's gonna repeat this several times in different contexts throughout the psalm. But it starts with that, give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he's good and his steadfast love endures. The Hebrew word that's translated steadfast love, we've talked about it here before, it's the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed is hard to translate because it, it communicates a really big idea. Some older translations will say loving kindness. But the idea of chesed is, is covenant faithfulness. That's what's being communicated by that word. Chesed means this God keeps his promises to those he loves. It's the form that the love takes. He keeps his promises. He's faithful. He's loyal. And so the song begins as Jesus goes to Gethsemane 
to fall on his face before God, God is good. And he's faithful. He keeps his promises. He gets way crazier than that. Later it says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. New Testament authors are going to quote this psalm later to explain how it's predicting what Jesus is, that Jesus is going to be the one rejected by his own people, but the result of that rejection is actually going to be the foundational stone upon which the rest of the plan of God is built. And so again, Jesus goes to be rejected by his people, to be abandoned by his friends, and he sings that rejection will lead to something marvelous, will lead to salvation. But it's this next thing from earlier in the psalm that is, is so awe-inspiring to me that I almost can't read it every time I read it. I want you to imagine Jesus 24 hours, less than 24 hours from his death, about to be mocked, humiliated, beaten, tortured, and killed. And he sings this. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Jesus is going to walk to the garden. He's going to wrestle with this. He's going to be pressed to the breaking point. And he goes, when I call to the Lord, the Lord hears me. The Lord is on my side. How could I be afraid? What can man do to me? What can they do with the Lord on my side as my helper? I'm going to triumph. These are the words Jesus sings before he goes to betrayal and death. Can you imagine it? Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. He's my helper. When I call out, my God answers me. And I'll look in triumph. And the form that triumph takes, verse 17 says it so plainly that it's stunning. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Jesus goes to his death. And before he does, he sings, I'm not going to die. I'm going to live. And Jesus knows that. And there's a detail from earlier in the story that shows that he knows it. And it's incredibly easy to miss. In fact, all the disciples miss it. Jesus tells them, you're all going to fall away. And then he says something else. Probably none of you noticed it either. You're all going to fall away. He says something else. And the disciples just jump on the all of you are going to fall away part and start arguing about that. But right after he tells them that they're going to fall away, he says this. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Anybody notice that? Jesus is comforting them. You're all going to fall away. You're all going to betray me, but it's okay. I'm going to be raised back up. And when I do, I'm going to go before you. What does that mean? It means you're going to follow behind me again. Betrayed, betrayed, betrayed. Matthew tells you 10 times he's betrayed. But what does he do? It's okay. I'll be raised up and you'll come behind me again. You'll follow me again. And so here's the thing. This is the simple truth. Not only do you know that when you suffer, you pray to a God who knows that, but if you are in Christ, if you put your trust in Jesus, 
the great promises of that psalm, they're true of you. The Lord is by your side as a helper. The Lord will bring salvation. You will look in triumph. You shall not die but live. And you, betrayed or betrayer, God will raise up Jesus and he will lead you again. And so we can say, along with Jesus and his disciples and every other family celebrating Passover that night in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he's good. Amen? And his steadfast love endures forever. He keeps his promises. So I want to invite you to, to stand with me. And as we consider Jesus in the garden, there's something very basic but very important that you have to recognize. The reason that you get to drink this cup, Paul talks about it as a cup of fellowship. You have fellowship with God. The reason you get to drink this cup that you don't deserve is because Jesus drank the cup you do deserve. There's a cup of wrath, Jeremiah says, filled with God's wrath against the nations. And guess what? I put some wine in that cup, you guys. And so did you. That was ours to drink. And the only person who didn't put a drop in drank all of it. And so when we come to communion, we remember you are offered the cup of friendship with God, the cup of son, daughter. You're invited to the table to have a meal with him. Why? Because he drank the cup of wrath on your behalf. On the night that he was betrayed, the very night we've been talking about this whole time, Jesus took bread, and after he had broken it, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Father, the privilege of calling you that is something that is earned by your son. And I recognize it as the gift it is, Father. Help us to see in the example of Jesus what it looks like for a true and righteous man to suffer. And help us also to see in his suffering our rescue, that he took upon himself something deserved by us. And Gethsemane shows us that that, that was no fake sacrifice. It's not, your, it's not God driving around a human puppet. This is a man facing death and pain and anguish on our behalf. And yet, Lord, we, we know that in the great mystery of your plan, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. That in rising from the cross, he's given a name above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee bows. And so, Lord, in that great mystery, as we approach Easter, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for his faithfulness, for his courage. And help us in our lives to imitate him a little more each day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.